the Soma and the wilderness. How's it going, everybody? And welcome to the Soma in the Wilderness podcast, a podcast of which we're trying to dive deep into different scriptural stories and learning some uh, different perspectives as we go through maybe some familiar and maybe some not familiar stories of the scriptures of the Bible. We're grateful that you're with us here as we continue to try to reach out to our people at Holy Spirit Lutheran Church in Las Vegas and to whoever might be listening to this around the country or the world. We're grateful that you're with us here as we continue this time together. Today, I want to bring in a text that I think most of us know and most of us are familiar with as children and even adults and one that brings the imagination into play in a different kind of way. One of the things that I love about scriptural imagination or theological imagination is that it's not about making up a God that we want, but sometimes we need a space of imagination in order to be able to be brought into what I believe God actually is. One of the things that I think about is what if the imagination that we've been given is actually another way that the Holy Spirit works? What if this thing that works in us that actually asks that question, what if, about God, might be part of the way that the Holy Spirit works in us? And so sometimes we ask those questions of Scripture because they show us a different uh, perspective of God or a different side of God, a different revelation of God. And sometimes by asking that question into Scripture, that Scripture then brings us into its deeper meaning, a deeper way of seeing the scriptures, a deeper way of understanding the Holy Word as it pertains to our life and as it pertains to the world. There's a term for the way that we read scripture and sometimes it, it differentiates the way that we read it. Exegesis is a fancy word, but it's a word that means we read scripture from the standpoint of where it was written. We read it from the, the intention of the author trying to understand the context and the, the words, the symbols, the terms that are used, trying to understand the historical and socioeconomic and political and religious backgrounds and context framework that a story is put in. It's a, it's a, exegesis is a way that we encounter the scripture from the spirit that was moved at the time. And there's another way that we read scripture, and that's what I think commonly most of us have been taught in terms of reading scripture, and that's eisegesis. Eisegesis is a way in which we read scripture from the standpoint of what I think it's about, from the standpoint of what it means to me today and how it might work into my life. And sometimes eisegesis can be a great way to encounter scripture, to ask what are some of these lessons that are learned here? But I also think that eisegesis can be a very dangerous thing as well, especially when it's mixed with a, mixed with a concoction of literalism. Literalism is the desire to want to read the Bible like a historical textbook, like a fact book, something that we have to read at face value and there's no deeper message 
It's not taking into account some of the figurative language of ancient writers. It's not taking into account some of the depth that's found and some of the differences that the way that the Bible has been written. The Bible is a book of many different kinds of writing. Some of them are histories. Some of them are historical. Some of them are ways to tell a story through poetry or through some other form of passionate expression. Other times, scriptures use a figurative or symbolic kind of way of speaking about God that literalism doesn't quite contain or get at. And so the way that we read scripture can oftentimes show us a lot about ourselves. And one of those stories that I think pushes against some of the ways we think about the life of the Bible, when we think about the way it works in our life. And one of the, the stories that really test us in terms of exegesis and eisegesis is the story of Jonah. You know the story, a story of a man stubborn in his calling to go and tell Nineveh to repent. And in that stubbornness is thrown into the waters and swallowed up by a whale and then spit out on the shores of Nineveh. And this wonderful and fantastical story of a prophet who's formed to do God's work, whether he likes it or not. And a story that ultimately challenges our understanding of scripture. I've had a lot of people that have asked me about this story as if a whale and asking me, can a whale actually swallow a human being? Can a human being survive in the whale's stomach like Jonah did? And, uh, you know, there's a funny way that we say uh, this in, in seminary sometimes, the idea of Jonah, is it a story about a whale or is it a whale of a story? And I think that it may, uh, may be fruitful for us not to get so caught up in the biology and the science of how Jonah can survive in a whale's stomach, but rather to think about the whale in a different kind of way and to see how the story might be more about how we're invited into God's wisdom and how God's wisdom might be calling us to be wise ourselves. Just how is it that we enter into wisdom and how a story about a whale might actually be uh, entrance, might be an invitation into wisdom. So I wanna go through this story a little bit with you and, and point out a few parts of the story of Jonah and talk a little bit about what this might mean for us as we go through um, our life and how we ask how we might be a part of God's wisdom and how we might mature in our faith. I think part of my job as a pastor and part of what I desperately desire for the church is that we grow in our faith and maturity. That we don't just go into our adult life hoping and working to trying to solidify the thoughts that we had in confirmation or junior high or high school. If you are reading scripture the same way when you're 65 years old that you did when you were 23 or nine or even 40, there might be a problem because we're called to be mature people. We're called to progress. Maturity is just another word in the Greek called maturion or martyron, to be able to become undertaking, uh, to be able to become something, an undertaking of sorts, a way in which we're progressed into uh, a wisdom, progressed into faith, the way that we suffer through things, the way that we take them on and we learn. 
Maturion might also be familiar from a word that we call martyr. That idea, not just to die for one's beliefs, but to be someone that undertakes their beliefs to a very point that their life can no longer live without them. So interesting that our ideas of disciple, and that's actually the stem of which disciple comes from, the same stem as maturity or martyr. That a disciple is one that not does not just hear the word and then hold on to that word as if it cannot change. You know, sometimes I think we believe, we want to believe that God doesn't change. Well, I want to know how we can prove that. How can we find that out? And what good does it do for us if God never changes? Certainly there's things in our life where we find comfort and strength in knowing that God won't change. And there's a, an important part of that. But also that, that part of thinking that God doesn't change has also kept many people who proclaim Jesus as their Lord, has many people called Christians. It's kept us in the dark and it's kept us from progressing along with God as God might be finding new ways to reveal God's heart in the world today. And so part of what I love about this text is that it pushes on us, it, it moves us, it, it, it asks questions of us. And that's a good thing. Every time scripture can challenge us, I believe it also invites us into a deeper space with it. It invites us into a place in which we can become more mature in our faith. We might be progressed in a way that sees God in a different way. And so this text here in Jonah, I think, is a very important text because it's one of those uh, texts that gives us an exercise in maturity. So let's jump into this. I think, first of all, the way that this text starts out, there's a certain gravity to it. Gravity, like I mean in terms of the way the earth pulls us to stay on it. A law which none of us have, well, maybe a small part of us, if you've ever been in an anti-gravity machine or something, or if you've been lucky enough to fly to the moon, which not a lot of us have. But gravity is something that becomes a reality for us. It's a norm of life. If you drop something, it's going to fall to the ground. It's something that we've become used to. But gravity, I think, is another way of thinking about drawing something, about pulling something, a force that goes beyond our seeing or our understanding, but yet we know it's true. We know it's a part of our life. And so when we talk about gravity in our lives, we talk about things that draw us to it, ways or understandings that draw us into its midst. We may not always see how this is doing, how this is working, but it's something that is true and stronger than ourselves. So as we jump into Jonah, we realize that Jonah right away is faced with being pulled out of where he's at and being drawn into a new way of thinking by a force that's much powerful than him and frankly by a force that he doesn't seem to really want to have a part of. You see, it reminds me a lot of when we were children, at least for me. I remember the first time that I discovered that I couldn't fly or move something with my mind or maybe turn invisible. These things that I had seen in comic books and movies that I really loved. And it was shocking. I remember really believing that I could fly or that someday I could learn to fly or I could be strong enough. But it didn't matter how badly I believed or how much I really wanted it. Gravity and the floor seemed to be my only reality every time I jumped off my bed. And so now, obviously, in time, I realize that gravity 
creates a reality that I can't necessarily pull myself away from. I realize in time now, it seems that life has a bunch of patterns with these kind of lessons. These kind of lessons that draw us both into the reality and the truth about our world around us, but also, I think, in faith about the truth about God. No matter how bad we want our wisdom to reign, the lessons we learn in our lives that have gravity, that have meaning and significance, that pull us, they might be a part of how we learn how to be wise. That maybe part of growing in wisdom is about learning our own limitations and in our experiences with the edges of our limitations, meeting a God who is willing to work in the midst of everything even in the places we don't expect and even in the places where we come crashing down. If we look at the story of Jonah, it starts out in this way. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Go at once to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. I love this, right? So the presence of the Lord starts out in this story by coming to Jonah and telling him to go to Nineveh. His immediate response is to go the opposite direction. His immediate response is to go to Tarshish. And notice how the, the author uses this three times. First he goes, sets out to Tarshish. Then he goes to find a ship to Tarshish so that he may go with other people to Tarshish. And in that going, in that direction, he flees from God. He flees from the presence of the Lord, it says. And I love this, this idea that something about our desires at times can actually be pulling us from God. And sometimes even our godly desires, or at least our faithful desires, might actually be that which God is going to confront. So here's the point that I want to make. In the beginning of this text, Jonah quickly realizes that no matter the motivation that he has or the strength behind his intentions, that he cannot hide from God. You see, sometimes I think our, our human desire wants to be to make a compartment in which God does not come in unless he's invited in. That there's something about our belief in God, that God has created us and put us into this place of creation, and that somehow we can control whether or not God is with us, or where God is, or who God's with. And Jonah quickly here realizes that no matter how far he tries to run, he can't escape God. He can't hide from God. Jonah cannot escape God's calling to a needed and complex world. That the repentance of Nineveh is something that God had desired. So we see this right away, that God's heart is desiring to go to all places, even places such as Nineveh. And later on in this story, we're going to hear about Jonah's uh, deep, deeply set anger and, and disgust with Nineveh. Nineveh, for Jonah, is seen as a place where evil dwells, a place where he does not want to go. 
And Jonah's pulled deeper by God through more than just a personal experience. Jonah is pulled into a reality that God's presence and calling over his life is about to encounter a God that transforms his very life for the sake of the world around him, for the sake of the neighbor, even the sake of the enemy. You see, the first commandment is that God is God and we are not. I am the Lord your God. There shall be no others, including ourselves, including our own agendas, including our own desires, including our own instructions for how we want God to behave in the world. You see, there's something that I deeply desire for the people of our church and for the people of faith, and that is to un untame the scripture. See, even, even in my encounters with people who want the Bible to be black and white, they want it to be simple, they want it to be literal, they want to be able to, to, to believe that when they read it, they're going to understand it. Well, here's the thing, folks. We're reading a book that parts of it are written thousands of years ago in a context that we're so foreign from and in a way of thinking or a structure, a system of thinking that we're no longer using or we're no longer abiding by. And so the fact of the matter is the ancient scriptures that are written in very different times, we might miss a lot about what's going on. In fact, the Bible might be a lot more like a wild animal than we want it to be. Because sometimes when the Bible is let loose, and when we realize just how much we might miss in scripture, the Bible becomes very powerful. And so I want it to be unleashed. I want it to be let out of the cage because there's something about this place that when we encounter it on a level that's much deeper than what we think it is, that there might be a God at the end of that that's actually pulling us into a deeper wisdom, a deeper way of understanding, deeper reality about us. So God is God and we are not, and that is a very, very good thing. So what does it feel like when we realize that our agenda is not the agenda? <laughs> what, do we, what do we do when the, the desires of our heart aren't the desires of God's heart? That God is setting the bearing. And that our first experience of faith, of wisdom, might actually be letting go. That we might be called to be aware that we're not God after all, that indeed we're just human, we're creation, but also in the same letting go of whatever gets in the way of being a living witness, that we might actually be drawn more closely to God's intention for our life, that we might actually be brought into a God's heart and desire, God's intention for creation through this very destabilizing human experience of letting go of our agenda first. You see, the truth about our faith is that number one, we are always catching up to God. One of the, one of the great rabbinical lessons that was taught was that when Moses came and sat with God, and the, those wonderful stories of the burning bush and God and Sinai, one of the things that God said is, you have to look at me from behind. You have to look at my hind parts. And that's not God just telling Jonah or, or Moses, I'm sorry. Uh, that's not just God telling Moses to check him out, see how he's doing with his squats. 
How does he look in these jeans? No, this is God's way of saying, and I love the way that the rabbis teach it, that for those who follow God, the best we could ever do is to be in the place where God just was. And so for us, this place that we go to in our faith is this way that God is showing us a lead. We're following God. This is the same way that the Christians were called people of the way in the first century. They weren't called Christians because they followed a way of Christ. And so a way does not mean that we always know the direction or the destination, but it means that we know the next step. And so God calls us to follow. And one of the things that I think is important in understanding is why. Well, this is part of where I believe one of our, our invitations to wisdom brings us into a deeper faith. I believe that God is not bringing a revelation in our faith just to make each one of us secure in our own understanding of faith. I believe God is bringing a revelation of God's heart and desire into the world so that we might learn how to become better for one another. That we might learn how to live in a way that gives life now and that we might learn how to be a part of God's heart that's after everyone. That we might learn how to become a living witness to God's living spirit. God's not some Santa Claus up in the, the clouds that's just with a list and checking it off and checking it twice and going to find out who's going to be naughty and nice. God is not Santa Claus with just a bigger beard. But God is after and active and working towards getting back in the heart of God's people. That actually the way we act might be more or less a part of that kind of heart. And Jonah shows us this right away. He walks away when he's called to go to Nineveh. He walks away when he's called to go and be this good news for God to a people that, that Jonah doesn't want to go to. <laughs> There's a gravity to God's intent here that Jonah can't get away from. What makes a normal person? I think if we were to ask this question, the first thing that we would have to analyze is what we mean by normal. Normal for us as human beings is a word that we use to draw a baseline for something. Something would normally do this. Something would normally taste this way. Something would normally go this way or someone would normally act this way. Or one of the ways that we use to describe one another. Well, that guy's just kind of normal. But if we think about it, our ideas of normal are vastly different from one another. For normal has a lot to do with the way we were raised. If we were lucky enough to be raised by loving parents in a good home, parents who stayed together and loved one another, who loved you, protected you, provided for you, told you that they loved you, and showed you at least examples of that every so often. You grew up with a normal being a pretty high standard for people. I think we could all agree that most people, most normal people, are good, at least for the most part. If we were to line up ten people, we could say eight of them, normally, would be a good citizen, not a criminal, 
not somebody who broke the law or treated people badly. But even in the two of that ten that were criminals, there is a type of person, a type of criminal, even within the criminal world, that always seems to really shake our ideas of people being normal. I know for me, that began in 1991, when I was in fifth grade, and I was beginning to understand the world in many different ways. But as I sat in the summer of 1991, watching the news with my parents, a news story came up about an arrest of a man in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, named Jeffrey Dahmer. Now, I don't need to spend much time about who Jeffrey Dahmer is or what he's done. Most of us know the story. But Jeffrey Dahmer was another example in the long line of examples of people and criminals that we call serial killers. A movie that was centered on this idea came out in 1991 as well. And even though, as a fifth grader, there's no way that I should have been watching this, it's interesting how a kid can get his hands on a copy of that movie, or any movie, and come home and watch it on his own, and get scared out of his mind at watching a story about real people that were so violent, so angry, and so cruel that they would go out into the world and kill over and over and over again for enjoyment and for other deranged means or reasons. I know this is a really weird way to start out a podcast, especially one on the Bible, but if we're going to understand the book of Jonah, then we have to first understand the context of which this story, this history of a prophet is written. You see, in the Bible, the traditions are that most of the prophets actually went to Israel. Most of them called to Jerusalem to speak to the tribe and to the elders, to the leaders, to the temple priests, to remind them of the ways that they had turned away from God and to beg of them to turn back. And yet, most of those prophets ended up dead in that city because of the words they came to say. But this prophet, this prophet text, is different than those. And one of the ways that it's different is that Jonah is not called to go to Israel, but Jonah is called to go to Nineveh. And Nineveh is a huge city in the capital of an empire named Assyria. Assyria, the forefather of what we know now as just Syria, was known for being a powerful military empire, one that you would not want to mess with, one that you certainly would not on your, want on your doorstep. But Assyria, known for being a great military power, was known even more for being something a little bit more creepy, a little bit more scary, a little bit more like the stories we hear about someone like Jeffrey Dahmer. You see, Assyria was known for their ruthlessness and their cruelty 
towards the ways in which they treated their enemies. One of the ways that the histories of Assyria is written is a way of showing their architecture, the ways that they built their buildings, the way their palaces looked, the throne room, and one of the rooms that they called as a pre-throne room, or what we would call maybe as a lobby today. A place where leaders and kings, military leaders of other countries who had come to, to, to do diplomacy with the king of Assyria would wait. And on the walls of that lobby were stone carvings depicting scene after scene of the way the Assyrian king had treated his enemies. Scenes of graphic horror, things that would make any of our skin crawl. Things that when you think about the time that Nineveh is alive, their, their empire is thriving, is already a barbaric time. A time where beheading was a common punishment handed out daily in many empires across the world. And yet, what would you have to do to stand out amongst that kind of cruelty already? To be known to being extra cruel, to being feared by your enemies, for the way that you would torture them if they were caught trying to work against you. It's these very people, in fact, the very city that the king dwells in, that Jonah is called to go. And in fact, it's that very place that Jonah does go. And I think one of the things about this story is that Jonah understands exactly where he's going and exactly who he's dealing with. And there's two things here that are equally troubling. One, we've already talked about. These people are crazy. They're like Hannibal Lecter in their way of dealing with their enemies. They'll do anything to get the attention of everyone else to make an example of his enemy. But the other thing, other thing, and maybe more troubling for Jonah, is why would God want these people to be a part of God's kingdom? Why would God want these people to be saved, to, to be redeemed? Why would God want these people to repent, to turn and come back to God? You see, it's easier for Jonah to keep these people as monsters for what they've done than to see them as people worthy of God's grace. Jonah is sent into a world where his very life is at stake. And yet the very people that he might give his life to return he doesn't want a part of. You see, Jonah, called to be a part of this new creation, might already believe that's hopeless from the very beginning. So let's read this story. Let's hear of how Jonah walks through this city. Apparently it's a three-day walk across this city if you're going to walk across Nineveh. And the story tells us that Jonah only gets one day across telling people to return, to repent from their ways. And the whole city 
it says in the scriptures, everyone great and small turned from their violence, put on sackcloth, called for a fast, and began their grief, their mourning, their repentance. What would you do if you walked into the most dangerous place on earth and only one day into a three-day journey, you got the job done? The people that you thought were too far gone actually turn. And what do you do when your hometown won't even do the same thing? What do you do when the leaders of your own church, your own temple, your own way, your own synagogue won't even heed God's warning. And these people, the Assyrians, will. Well, this story might be, for all of us, an invitation to seeing faith in a little different kind of way. And it's going to be in the belly of a whale that we're going to find a different kind of perspective. Because this story, known pretty famously, not known for the Assyrian violence and cruelty, but certainly known for a whale. This is a whale of a story. But the whale may not be what we always thought it would be. And here's a little disclaimer. I'm not going to try to explain how a human being can live in the whale, in the belly of a whale. But it will ask us to see this story from a different way. Why? Well, because maybe that's where God begins. Maybe God begins when we are surprised. When we're brought into a new kind of creation that we never saw coming. Maybe it's in the midst of chaos that God creates a place of sanctuary. And in that place, we're called to change along with what God is doing. This is about faith in a very real way. So here's the thing. Anytime that God comes into our life and causes disruption, like we see in Jonah, there is a remembrance of some things that I think we all can understand. And that is the the terror of a confusing encounter, what it means to, to be in conflict. And I think conflict is one of those things that most of us uh, can remember. Maybe it's going back to the schoolyard and the bullies that we faced or the people that we got frustrated with as children only to, to leave our mark on them uh, through a fight or some sort of uh, confrontation that we've had. But even if we're in that space, I bet you can remember the, the kind of way that it felt um, to become a part of that. I can still remember that feeling. For many of us who grew up with siblings, you probably experienced your first fight with them uh, as we wrestled in the living room or in our bedrooms, maybe pretending to be wrestlers as we jumped from the top rope to finish off our opponent. These moments of chaos and hostility are scary sometimes, even they leave us shaken and bruised, but it also overwhelms us with a feeling of something stronger than ourselves, that we're pulled into a bad situation, that somehow we're a part of it, we're not all of it, but yet in the midst of it, we come face to face with fear and consequence. 
You see, part of our human experience in faith, I believe, is that when we stand ourselves up against God, when we look at maybe what God has intended, and here Jonah has been intended to be sent uh, to the people of Nineveh, and he, of course, goes the other direction. He goes down to Tarshish. He, he leaves that space again and again, uh, not wanting, as the, as the author shows us, that he goes, uh, it mentions it three times that he goes to Tarshish. He's forced to admit uh, what it's like to be out of control. He's forced to realize that God has called him one way and that now he's trying to take control for himself. And we see how that happens is he gets in the sail in the, in the boat and the sailors, uh, it says here, uh, verse chapter one, verse seven, the sailors said to one another, come, let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this calamity has come upon us. I love that. The sailors obviously are now in a, a battle for their life. They're in a storm and the sea has come up against them and they uh, are wondering who is responsible for this. Who has brought us into this bad situation? And it's Jonah's rebellion here that comes and impacts these sailors. And that's part of what I think is important in this story. You see, Jonah is doing what he believes is right. For him and his people, Nineveh is not worth saving. And yet, in his turning from the call of God to go to the people of Nineveh, in his turning to run to Tarshish, he brings these sailors, these innocent bystanders, into calamity. And sometimes, I think in our individualized way of faith, we... We like to believe that our choices are isolated to us, that we live in a vacuum, if you will. That's something uh, that we do not uh, carry a burden onto others. But I think there's something that's incredibly misguided about that understanding. Because we have to understand that sometimes our rebellion against who God has made us to be not only might bring someone into a difficult or troubled situation, but it also might keep them from somebody who was called to help. And so here, I love this because both Jonah is, is leaving or fleeing those who God has, has called him to help, but he's also bringing others into calamity. Sometimes when we're forced to admit that we're not in control, sometimes what we're a part of, impacts more people than we could ever imagine. Sometimes our walking away has greater consequences than anything we can feel. The sailors in the boat with Jonah have now become impacted by Jonah's rebellion. Their decision to put space between themselves and Jonah, even if we think it's a bit harsh, was made with great hesitation and guilt. But they felt that throwing Jonah overboard was their only shot. It seemed to work as they hoped. When we read this part of Jonah, it's not hard to become aware of just what kind of danger Jonah put people in through his denial of God's calling. I think part of letting go and relearning how to let go is about being shaped to live in obedience to God's love and the love that's shared together with each other through the Holy Spirit. 
You see, I think that's an incredibly crucial part of a Christian's life in, in terms of our faith with God, is understanding that God is calling us to be a part of something. God is calling us to live into a, a calling for our life. And sometimes that means letting go of certain things, as grudges or maybe our perspectives of seeing the world, but also in this letting go, we learn to be shaped into God's will. And God's heart is after everyone. And so on some level, to be shaped into God's will means that we have been grown to be made aware of those around us. This activity of the Holy Spirit that seems to be a weaver, if you will, something that weaves a, a thread of meaning or purpose of presence with all of us, that the Holy Spirit is actively engaged, not just in individual relationships with each person that God has made, but that the Holy Spirit is also gathering us into relationship as one body. Jonah and Nineveh are not different than that. Jonah is called to go and remind Nineveh that they are a part of the body and that for the things they have done, they must repent. You see, sometimes I think our Christian identity of repentance is this idea of being sorry for what we've done. And, and certainly our sorrow has a big power in that. And certainly our remorse can be a big motivator for us to be changed in what we're doing. But also I think it's important for us to remember right, that repentance is not just an act of contrition, but it's an act of healing and reconciliation as well. You see, God is after Nineveh. God wants to reconcile the people there. And God has called Jonah to be a part of that. He has to let go of his way of thinking of Nineveh. He has to be confronted. He has to be scuffled with like a schoolyard, a schoolyard fight. And Jonah is called into with God. And here God reminds Nineveh that his rebellion has put other people in danger. But it's also put Jonah himself in a great bit of danger here. As he's thrown over the side of the boat, <laughs> he's put in a grave place. I think that's where this whale shows up. A whale, not just of punishment, maybe a whale that comes as sanctuary or a space that allows Jonah to see something different. See, Jonah, at the heart of this story, as we begin to wrap this up in our last segment, is really a radical story of God's scope of reconciliation, reclamation, of what it looks like that God's redeeming of others might actually change the way we see God. You know, it's an interesting thing to think about, but the idea of asking ourselves the question, who is the beloved of God, or who is it that God's heart is after, it changes the ways we look at the world. If we look at someone with anger or hatred, and then ask the question, did Jesus die for this one? We think about the way that God loves this person, even in the midst or in spite of the things they do. It might change the way that we engage with them. That's what I really love about the story of Jonah. 
is Jonah is such a human character. He has such anger for the people of Nineveh. And the story ends with something very similar, a parallel, if you will, to something that really is the marker of this story. And yes, folks, we're going to finally get in to one of the most famous parts of this story. I'll never forget the first time that I saw the movie Pinocchio, and the part where Pinocchio is swallowed up in the belly of a whale. And it's really the first time that, I guess, in my young life I had been privileged to even seeing a depiction of what that might look like. But I knew that story from church, from Sunday school. I knew the story of being in the belly of a whale long before I ever saw the movie Pinocchio. And that's really the question a lot of times around this story is, can someone really live inside the belly of a whale? Well, I think when we ask that question of it, when we ask this question to be our proof for whether or not this story is true or not, we miss a huge metaphor. And part of seeing that metaphor is that there is a parallel drawn in this story between not just the whale, but also the bush that is produced for Jonah at the end of this chapter, the end of Jonah's book. You see, these whale, this whale and this bush are both part of the same kind of presence. You see, the whale is provided so that Jonah does not drown. For remember where we picked up in the story that Jonah was amongst this great storm and these fishermen, these, these, these people out, these mariners on the boat that are asking, throwing their cargo out, asking their gods to change the storm, to calm the storm, and the storm does not end. And there is Jonah asleep at the belly, the bottom of the boat. And they ask him, what have you done? And in that wonderful kind of consciousness, that wonderful uh, crux of, of decision-making, should we throw him out? Will it save our lives? And eventually they come to the decision to throw Jonah into the water, into the storm, and the storm stops. But it doesn't necessarily mean that Jonah is safe. It doesn't necessarily mean that Jonah is done with his journey. And so that whale that comes, that swallows up Jonah, is another characteristic of God's taking care of Jonah. God's providing of a space of safety, a sanctuary, if you will. That's one of the best ways that I think we can look at this whale, not just as a biological question, because I don't know, and I have my doubts <laughs> as to whether a human being can actually live in the belly of a whale. But when I think about what God does in the midst of chaos, by creating a space for us to be safe, and it's a word that we use in the Christian faith called sanctuary, the bush and the whale offer Jonah the same experience. They create a sanctuary, whether it's a safety from the water or whether it's safety from the sun, they offer Jonah a place of safety. But more than that, they offer Jonah a divine place to wrestle with God. Because it's both here in the belly of the whale and underneath the shade of that bush that Jonah will be asked to wrestle with what God is doing with the people of Nineveh. It's like a divine timeout. That Jonah is brought into this almost timeless space where he has to wrestle with not just the question about who is Nineveh, as we've talked about in this podcast in the beginning, 
but who is God? And why is God calling Jonah to be part of this divine reclamation and in God's intent to reclaim these people of Nineveh, to reconcile these people of Nineveh with God's self? Jonah's view of God has changed. And so this place in the whale and this place that we again see in chapter four with the bush, both of these places offer protection, but both of these places beg, beg Jonah to think about what is God doing, to get on board with God's perspective, to align himself with God's heart. You see, I think the other way we can look at this whale in this bush is that there's an advocacy in the space. This place, this season, this time that God gives us to change our perspective. Because whether it's the intimidation that I must feel if Jonah's really in the belly of a whale, or at least to imagine ourselves in the imagery of being swallowed up by a great beast in one of our most unnatural settings. <laughs> I know besides a few human beings on this planet, like Michael Phelps, some of those people, that being in the water is an uncomfortable place for human beings. Certainly, as things start to swim beneath us, it can be an unsettling feeling when you're in a lake or an ocean. You don't see the bottom, but you feel something graze across your foot or your leg. This kind of intimidation that must have happened as Jonah begins to be swallowed. This place that forces Jonah into a different kind of level of, of existence. Am I going to be okay? <laughs> maybe at the forefront of his mind. And as that whale begins to provide a safe place upon which Jonah does not perish, Jonah begins to sing. He sings his praises. It's a wonderfully beautiful poem. I'm not going to read it to you, but I, I do urge you to read it in the second chapter that Jonah sings these praises before God. And as he sings these praises three days and three nights, there is a space upon which Jonah is forced into changing his perspective. Maybe this song is evidence that his heart is changing. Maybe things don't happen that quick. I love the imagery of the whale, this spewing, as it says in some of our texts. But all other texts talk about this idea of the whale vomiting out Jonah. That on some level, there's a holiness to God's disfavor. You see... I know that we are on a journey together. None of us know the answer. None of us have the secret. There is no such thing as the magical potion or the magical solution. All of us are on a journey in which we are learning what it means to be a part of significance and meaning, what it means to be a part of truth. How does that work between us and how does that work between God? And in each one of these places, God journeys with us. God reveals us truth. God shows us his spirit. And on some level, when we choose to rebel against God, God offers, yes, another holy space, another advocacy in space by spewing us out of the belly of that which provides sanctuary, moving us out of this place of comfort and solace to go back out into the world. And that's exactly what happens here. Jonah gets vomited out of this belly of this whale and gets sent back into Nineveh. Nineveh, 
that hears him, that, that, that turns, that quiets their self, that comes in repentance and reflection after this place. And in this returning to God, Jonah is provoked even more. Because this place that Jonah has now been spit out of is not a safe place anymore. Jonah has gone into the belly of another beast, the belly of Nineveh, the belly of his own beast, the belly of his lack of regard for who these people are. And maybe even more incriminating, his lack of regard for God's willingness to go after them. How do we know when we're out of alignment with God? How do we know when we're not working in the same way that God would want us to be working? I'm not going to sit here on my high horse and tell you there's a morality to the story and Jonah's just a bad guy because he can't get on board with God's grace. No, I think this is a much deeper story about us as human beings and maybe us about as maybe about us as humanity. The one thing that we do get to see whether it's individually or in the collective conscious of, of us as a people, is we get to see the effects of our behavior. And we get to ask the question, did it give life? Did it bring about life to other people? And what kind of life did it produce? Think about what kind of life this attitude of Jonah is producing is a very small kingdom. It's a very selective group. It has no regard for change or repentance. And I think it's this place that the, the sanctuary, the, the swimming sanctuary, maybe that's the better way of calling this whale, spews or vomits this little man out of his mouth. Because this little man has no regard for the way of God. Even though he has just given thanks for this place, even though he has just sing, sing and praise to God for this place that he has been saved in, it is also this same space that Jonah is no longer permitted to stay in because Jonah's work is outside of the belly of the whale. And Jonah, even though reluctantly, goes and does the work. But that's not the end of the story. You guys might remember that, I forget his name, I think it was Andy Rooney that did the, the story on 60 Minutes and it was called The Rest of the Story, where he would go in depth on a story and do some context and background. And this Jewish teaching, very in line with the way that the Jewish teachings work, which is not a clear-cut answer that doesn't leave us with clean endings or clean results but leaves us with a deeper question, maybe a deeper question that causes us to reflect again and again inside of us. Who am I when I am up and against God? Who am I when I'm up and against the calling of God? And am I aligned with the spirit that's been given to me to do this work? The story ends with God providing another place of sanctuary, the bush. This bush grows and offers shade to, and comfort as it says that this bush was given to give protection from the sun, to give a place of relief to Jonah. But in this place, Jonah's heart broods and sears and steams over what God is doing in the world. 
this question of God, how in the world could you love those people? How could you love those sinners, those ones who do not love you? Why are you after all of this creation that isn't always after you? This wonderful conversation that we see in the books of Jonah and the books of Job, some of these conversations that we see in the wrestling match of Jacob, some of the wrestling that we see in Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and Matthew, this reality of being human before God, this place where we can't hide from God. It's like hiding in a glass house. There's nowhere to hide. So Jonah's true emotions have to be put out there as this bush begins to shrink away as it grows up one day and dies away the next. God asks Jonah a very important question. Is it right for you to be angry about the bush? <laughs> Is it right for you to be angry about its dying, that I am no longer providing you a sanctuary? I love Jonah's answer. It's very short and to the point. Yes angry enough to die. You see, folks, sometimes there's things that we draw lines in the sand around. We say, I have to make a stand. I have to do these things. This is the way it has to go. This is the order that has to be followed. And God, you better catch up with me. God's response to Jonah in this very angry place is a reminder about who Jonah is and just who God is. God answers this way, quote, You are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons, who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many animals. And that's it, folks. That's the end of the story. That's where this ends. God leaves us with a cliffhanger, this question that really is now produced and pushed out for us to answer, to, to wonder about, to wrestle with. As the reader becomes a part of Jonah's story, is it right for us to be angry with God's ways? when God chooses to redeem those we don't think are redeemable. Well, I want you to think about what God has done for you, what God has done for me, in ways that we can only be honest with ourselves and God. We know that we're not worthy of this kind of love at times. We're not worthy of this kind of loyalty that God has for us, this kind of promise that God has, this kind of life that God is willing to give us through love through mercy and grace. Sometimes we look at the world and it's hard for us to extend that kind of grace for others. Sometimes our pain, our experiences, and our fear are very real in our own understandings and sometimes drive our own hearts and our minds, which eventually, of course, steer us into our world of action. Is it right for us to be angry with God's ways? Well, I guess the short answer to that is no. 
But sometimes it takes a journey for us to get on board. Sometimes it takes a place of death and resurrection, of being swallowed up and spit out, of being able to lay ourselves bare before God so that God might be laid bare before us. You see, the greatest joy that we have is to be aligned with God's heart, not because it's right, but because it gives life. And it gives a kind of life that isn't short-sighted. It's not full of hate. It's not limited. It doesn't run out. And it doesn't have boundaries upon which it cannot cross. God's love is after everyone. God's love is even after the parts of us that we would rather just throw away. Ultimately, when we're put in that kind of place, when we're brought into a forced sanctuary, <laughs> if you will, a season, a time, a place upon which our perspective must change, it's not an easy path, folks. None of this has been promised to be easy. Jesus says the path is tough, but my yoke is light. You see, ultimately what I love about Jonah is that God still does the heavy lifting. God still does the redemption and the reclamation of all the people in the story, whether it's the people of Nineveh or whether it's Jonah himself. Both people in this story are reclaimed. You see, what I love about these scriptures and what I hope that you're going to get from this kind of podcast is a deeper perspective. And I know that I've taken quite a bit of time here. You may have had to listen to this podcast in many different parts. And believe me, listening to a podcast, listening to one person talk for an hour straight is not my idea of fun. But folks, if we're going to live into the good work of the church, if we're going to live into the good work of being this messenger, this living sacrifice, folks, if we're going to learn what it means to sacrifice our hearts, our minds, and our lives to become part of true life, God's reconciled life, it's going to take some work. So let us roll our sleeves up. Let us remember that we're not working alone. Let us remember that God will help us along the way. But let's start in an honest place. Let's no longer hold up facades that aren't real, whether it's in ourselves or whether it's in the community. May the church reclaim the art of practice, of holy discomfort, of being willing to be a part of difficult discussions for the sake of bringing life into the world. Because the bottom line about Jonah, whether the story is a whale of a tale or a tale about a whale, the truth is God sends people, lives, flesh and blood to be the reminder to others of God's love. God did it in Jesus and God does it in us. 
Let us take seriously the task of being God's messengers in the world. It's not about figuring it out our way, but about learning to be a part of God's ways. And that's why I've entitled this podcast Soma and the Wilderness. Yes, the context of our work is the wilderness. We are in a mysterious place, one upon which we are always asking for God's guidance. But we are also the Soma, which means that we are the body. The body is made up of many parts. We got to do this work together. I'm honored that you're coming along with us on this journey. May God bless you on your path. Amen. <laughs>